Hello, and welcome to a Carnival Personnel Sideshow about the 1999 classic Galaxy Quest, and more so the documentary, which I didn't look up the year it came out. What, 2017, probably? 19. Call, two, oh, it's that recent. 2009, yeah, 20-year anniversary. That would make sense, right? Dumbass. Um, called Never Surrender. Joe, take it away. Hi, I'm Joe. <laughs> I'm Jacques. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Galaxy Quest, man. The Star Trek movie that almost was a Star Trek movie. It could have, basically could have been a Star Trek movie starring Tim Allen. And you saw you saw the documentary in the theater. So I, I like the movie. I've always liked the movie. Joe's liked the movie. We've, we've talked about it in passing. It's a cult classic. I mean, it did okay at the box office. You know, it costs like $45 million to make, and it brought in 90 which isn't, you know, doubling the money. Ba- doubling the money back there was pretty good. Now it has to be quadrupled. But it took a while. It, it was a critically acclaimed. The critics liked it. It won a crap load of awards. You know, not Academy Awards, no. but, every, but you, know, uh, you know, all the sci-fi awards and stuff I, like I that. I think it swept the Blockbuster Awards, if I'm not nah. mistaken. <laughs> uh, but it did. It did well in, in, in the award circuit. But it may it may cult classic status. But you saw the documentary, and I was watching on Amazon Prime the other day, knowing nothing about it. It's just like, oh, you know, I'll check this out for a few minutes. Absolutely loved it. I was blown away with how big of a movie it was in the sense that it was one of DreamWorks' first pictures. And it could have really made or broken DreamWorks at the time and at the same time it really you know I mean Tim Allen had done Toy Story but that's the only thing he had done outside of home improvement really that was his big thing and it kind of really legitimized him as a star at the time Santa Claus the movie I think the Santa Claus had, it was already out so he was he was up there he was getting up there he had the Santa Claus he had uh, Toy Story under his belt but uh yeah this this movie was so well cast. I mean, I guess we could start with talking about the cast. Tim Allen plays Jason Nesmith, an actor on a 70s kind of a it, it's a, it's a, it's as if Star Trek took place or was produced in the 70s instead of the 60s. And they're at a sci-fi con, one of many sci-fi cons I'm sure on their tour that summer where they're you know, it's it's a nostalgia kind of tour. They're reuniting. They just go out and pose and take questions and answers, and, and you know they're they're running the con circuit. Tim Allen's character, Jason Nesmith, is way into it. He he loves it. He kind of just likes living in that sort of nebulous of fandom. People lauding over him and looking back on his past, and he keeps to he he gets to rewatch his old clips over and over again, that kind of thing. And he's still making money, you know. He still lives well, you know. You see his you see his house; it's a it's you know it's awesome looking. But everybody else is just sort of like, you know, like this is it for them, and they've they've basically had enough. You know, the other cast members include Sigourney Weaver as uh, Gwen DeMarco, Alan Rickman. The who was awesome. The was so awesome. trained actor who plays Alexander Dane, but I forget the name of his character. Uh, but he basically has, he's like a, he's like a wharf, uh, uh, he's like a Klingon. More like a Spock. Right. Kind of like a Spock. He's a science officer. And he has a catchphrase that he loathes. He loathes being quoted his catchphrase, by Grapthar's hammer, I shall avenge you. And he hates 
hates hates having to be introduced by that quote and having to you know be greeted by that quote by fans seeking his autograph after the show. Um, well, hold on, hold on one sec. So let's go back a step. Yes, please. In, in 1999, I went to Comic Con in San Diego. It was a one day event, and it it was fun. Back then, 20 years ago, Comic Cons were losers who you know have a library of old video games in their basement. <laughs> Guys who have literally a shed full of old comics, you know, it was for losers, it was for nerds, it was for, you know, um, outcasts. You know, outcasts. Then along comes the Christopher Nolan, Christian Bale, Batman. Then comes the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Then comes the reboot of Star Trek. Then comes the reboot of Star Wars, like the last three Star. And now Comic Cons are these three day festivals where to get a weekend pass costs six, seven hundred dollars. The meet and greets, like literally twenty years ago, if you were going to meet William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, you might be paying honestly like a hundred bucks for a pass to get into the con and you got to meet the star and get something signed. You go back and it's like, you know, Adam West all through like the eighties, like, you know, made a living going to these low end cons. It, like, like Again, we're one day events, like 50 to uh, 70 bucks to get into and meet the people. And now honestly, just in Boston, it got canceled. But last month, if you wanted to meet Chris Helmsworth and Chris Evans and take a picture with them, it was $600, literally $600. That's not the price to get in to the Boston Comic-Con just to take the picture. So back then, you know, it was, you know, William Shatner. You remember that skit on Saturday Night Live where he was at a Comic-Con and somebody's like, okay, you were getting ready to beam down to the planet and you had to run back to your safe. What was the combination? <laughs> you know, I just have one thing to say to you guys. Get a life. I mean... <laughs> Look at yourself. Have you even kissed a girl? And so that that's what, what Comic-Cons was. So this this old TV show, they made a living. Like everybody else in the cast, I think Tim Allen's character went on to do other things. Plus he was the William Shatner. He was, you know, the big kahuna. And so people were really there to see him. And they might have liked, oh, oh, is here too. How nice. But it's all about William Shatner. And he knows it. And they know it, and his dressing room's bigger. They drive themselves in their Pinto. He gets driven to the Comic-Con in a limo. And the and so the whole crux of the movie is there's an alien race from outer space who thought that this was a tutorial, that they've been studying this TV show that went out into space. They picked up the transmission 30 years ago, and they based their entire fleet and armada and society around this. And they think – these are real people, and this is a real military class, for lack of a better word. And we have been to... studying the historical documents. The historical documents? <laughs> yes, the transmissions. That's a great reveal, and it comes pretty early in the movie. I like the, way, the pacing of Galaxy Quest, too, because it doesn't take a lot to have to set up this movie because they go right in with the opening credits of... The Galaxy Quest show from 1970-whatever. And that, in and of itself, explains what universe we're getting into. Then it you know, pans out to the Comic-Con, and then it goes in the green room 
squabbling with each other over, you know, I'm not going to say the line again. I don't care anymore. I can't do this. I'm, I studied Shakespeare. I, I, what did he say? I performed for the queen. Right. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, Tony Shalhoub plays a character. <sighs> who, who, he's like the engineer, but he's just completely given up on life. Like he's just there back there doing crossword puzzles. You know, he's not really, he's totally unfazed by what is happening, what will happen, what has happened. He's just there. Yeah, then there's the, 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 the kid, there's like a, a guy who's like a teenager or maybe like in his early 20s now, but he was a kid on the show because he was like, you know, he was like, what, the navigation officer or something from the show? Right, right. Yeah. Pedal to like the metal, a- captain. And so they kind of look down on their fans at this point. You know what I mean? They're a bunch of losers, dweebs, nerds. So, so the whole movie is this alien race comes down and then they abduct the crew because they're facing devastation and an army that they can't possibly beat. So they need this crew to come and pilot their ship and save their race. Now, take a step back into the casting. Tim Allen plays the lead, but Tim Allen was like their 10th choice. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was like Steve Martin. It was like they went through – go through everybody. Go through everybody in 1998 who was a comedic actor. And Jim Carrey, that kind of – yeah. Robin Williams. And then there were some people who really wanted to do it that they passed on. I mean some big names. And again, so DreamWorks had just started. And one of the executives was talking. It's like, oh, in the media, like all of our friends and, and the companies we left were like, oh, this is great. They're going to do amazing things and then hope we were going to fail. You know, that's, <laughs> just, that's just how Hollywood works. And so they were doing two movies at once. They pushed the chips in on the second movie a little more than this one. And so the executives were on the set of the other movie and more involved and watching the dailies and notes and kind of being present. And that movie was Gladiator. Mm-hmm. And so these guys basically got to do what they wanted to. And it was like no questions asked type thing. So they kind of approached it like that. It's like, okay, well, dad's not here. So let's do what we really want to do. And, and as far as the casting goes, so Tim Allen was not their first choice. They did not want Sigourney Weaver. They actually were trying to stay away from people who had sci-fi credits to their name because they didn't want to detract from their thing. They didn't want to say, oh, that's Sigourney Weaver. That's really Ripley from Aliens. She had to fight to be able to do this movie. And she plays like this blonde bombshell, always has the cleavage showing. Her only job on the show was to repeat whatever the computer told her. <laughs> Very sexist sort of casting uh, in the in the original show. It was, she she basically played against type in this movie. Like you don't really you know she's Sigourney Weaver, but she doesn't play the uh, traditional kind of Sigourney Weaver strong female role. She's strong in her own way, but her strength comes later. You know. There's so many uh, so many great things about the, the, the cast of this movie. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell is so great in him. He played like the other guy. In the, what, the, what's my name? What's my name? <laughs> Nobody knew what his name In was. the credits, his name is Guy. I mean, because right. they don't know what his name is. Because he literally played one guy who got like blown away by an alien in episode 76. 
but he's he still shows up at the conventions, kind of like unannounced, almost more like a fan than anything <laughs> yeah. else. He, he's just he's there to get the, some of the uh, some of the shrapnel of uh, of the fans. <laughs> like hopefully somebody there will maybe recognize him. Like hey, you're the guy. But, yeah, he, but he, he's like he's like an episode sixteen red shirt. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, we're gonna sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, and like he accidentally gets swept up with the crew because originally Tim Allen's character gets abducted first, but then when he comes back, he has to convince everybody like this is real, this is happening. I need you guys to come with me. This is awesome. And they're like, "You're drunk. You don't know what you're talking about." Uh, guy is left over from the the night before. He's like, I guess they're all at, they're at, oh they're at the opening of some sort of like um, electronic store, <laughs> where Alan Rickman's character says, "Buy Grabthar's hammer." What a saving! <laughs> <laughs> and so Alan Rickman, who is just so great in it, and he has such contempt for his character and for his other actors. It kind of parodied life a little bit because Alan Rickman had to be talked into doing this. It wasn't, oh, yeah, sure, that sounds great. You know, I can't wait. It was pre-Harry Potter, and he was a literally just like his character. He was a Shakespearean-trained thespian. He's not an actor. He's a thespian. And here's Tim Allen from Tool Time. Yeah. And he was not thrilled. There's one great story that they tell about Alan Rickman where Tim Allen has one scene that's a real and emotional scene in the movie. It actually breaks Tim Allen up. Like he he's doing the scene. It's a tough scene. It's, it's like the tough scene in the movie and he's emotional. And he's like, after, you know, as soon as it's done, he's like, Hey, I, I need a minute. I'm kind of just going to go off to the trailer. Not like storming off to the trailer and, and throwing a hissy fit. He's like, I need to go compose myself. Like this really, this really was emotional on him. And Alan Rickman, I guess, turned to the director. Goes, he just experienced acting for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me there was a movie, uh, Marathon Man, with Dustin Hoffman and Sir Lawrence oh, Olivier. Sir Lawrence Olivier. Sir Lawrence, you got you got that right. And there's a scene where he's been up for like 48 hours. And Dustin Hoffman was a method actor, so he stayed up for 48 hours, and he did this. And at the end of the scene, like, Sir Lawrence Olivier famously said, next time, try acting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, um, and I guess in the, after the production, and after the movie was wrapped, and after the premiere, I guess Alan Rickman had said to one of the executive producers from DreamWorks, Coast, it was fun intermittently. <laughs> well, yeah, what else did you take away from the documentary uh, about the movie that uh, that's, that struck you as, um, oh, I didn't know that? That a lot of the stuff was kind of improvised from the, what was, what was the name of the alien race? Oh, God, I got to look it up. But they they came up like – so basically they're humanoid creatures. They kind of look like human, but they're really these gigantic octopi people who are like shapeshifters. And so they're not sure how human bodies work. And so they kind of walk like marionette puppets almost with their arms. And that was all improvised by them themselves. Yeah. Like they came up with that. And some of them, they would all walk a similar – but not exactly the same because they were all shapeshifters in this form for the first time. So this one kind of had more of a limp where this one, you know, kind of had his left arm was kind of a marionette puppet and the right arm kind of only bent 
halfway. You know what I mean? And then uh, one of the female, the the main female alien, like her voice box didn't transform, so she could only talk in like gargle sounds yeah. that the that the rest of them could understand. And she just made that up. Like she just started <laughs> doing that, and the you know, and the director like, great. Keep doing that for the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Missy Pyle playing uh, Laliari. I mean, just just the when they're actually in battle, when they're in the uh, their first mission, if you will, they have to. I guess they they, they need some like a crystal or a rock or something, and they have to go to a mine down on this like abandoned planet or something that they think is abandoned, and they have to retrieve this crystal. So they can um, power the ship that's been damaged after the first battle. And they get down there, and um, they're referencing their show. Like, this is what would happen on our show. They're, like, they, they start to poke the holes into the tropes of sci-fi. And in 1999, this was sort of very new and novel. And this is the first movie that I can remember, mainstream movie, where you started to get that, oh, they know all the devices of, like, of how a movie is made. This is like around Scream. Like Scream did the what Scream did with with horror. Oh, right. Movies. This did with sci-fi movies. Like, you know, the 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 guy played by Sam Rockwell knew he was going to get eaten because he was the guy that he was like the red shirt guy that always gets blown away in the first, you know, 5 minutes of the episode. So they they knew that and they and they they actually used that knowledge to their advantage because somehow the universe also behaved that way, like, right? You know, so it's just it's funny and then also it's it, the the character development is great because they are basically thrust into these roles that they were not they were only partially prepared to play twenty years ago as actors. <laughs> And now they're being tested, like their resolve is being tested in there and their wills are being tested because, you know, they've, they've basically given up on life, essentially. So when you're talking like production thoughts, so I think it's on that first mission, Tim Allen is fighting a being on the planet and his shirt gets shredded and written and ripped off. And it's like such a Captain Kirk thing. Well, this is going down the rabbit hole a little bit. Like Captain Kirk, like William Shatner, always put on weight during a season. So you could tell, like literally you could tell, even if you're not an expert, it's like he would wind up shirtless at the beginning of seasons because he was proud of his physique. But by the craft services, by like, you know, episode seven or eight that year, he was literally wearing a girdle underneath his shirt that you can you can see to hold the gut in. And so Tim Allen's shirt gets ripped off and there's nowhere in the script that he has a shirt again. Like he doesn't go. And, and so he's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And so they're like, Oh, so somebody just hands him a shirt when he get like, they just happen to have a black t-shirt in his size when he, he gets back to them. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to explain that. Right. That's <laughs> the one thing that they're just going to be like, yeah, you know, Hey, he's just not doing the rest of the movie in his shirt, which is great. <laughs> There's there's a gift shop on the ship. I, you know what? They have um, replicators. And so, and the other thing is, so as as much one of the interesting things. So this is where the tide started to turn, as far as superhero movies and the fandom went. It went from William Shatner being on Saturday Night Live making fun of the people who went to Comic Con, and then this one at, at the most crucial scene of the movie, 
they need a code from the old TV show, and they end up having to call. Well, they ended up having to need three or four of the nerds. This is early. This is an early, early internet, but the internet is still kind of in its infancy, and they have to call Jason Long back on Earth. And they need to triangulate something between him and his three or four other nerd friends from the show. They need to they need to find out how to get to the core of the ship so they can initiate uh, some sort of like self destruct button. We won't get into it too much, but uh, or, or I think it's called like Plan Thirteen or something but like that. They 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 looked up to the fans, like the fans were important to the show and until their survival. And it was like they had a respect for them, sort of. Speak. You know, they they weren't looked down upon you know yes. as much as in the past and it was the first you know it was the first thing where it's like hey they're they're not losers for liking this show you know what i mean it's like we all have these houses because they like the show you know type thing so it wasn't insulting to the the nerds and the the joes and the shocks of the world out there and it was like the first time that i remember in a show like that where they went out of the way to make the fans it's like hey Thank goodness that you know this shit because it actually comes in handy, right? It, it, I, mean, we the, I mean, the great reveal spoilers if you're listening to this, but the great reveal about how at the beginning of the movie, Tim Allen tells Justin Long's character, like, look, it's it's not real. There is no ship. You know, I'm not a captain. It's just a show. Blah 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 blah. Cut to towards the end of the movie. They're on a ship that's built exactly to the specifications of the real show, and they need to get to a specific place in the ship. And he goes, "Wait a minute! I know somebody who knows exactly everything about this ship." And they call Justin Long, and then Justin Long picks up the communicator that he somehow gets a hold of, and you know he answers the, the communicator. It's Tim Allen. He goes, uh, "Look, I've been thinking about what you've been saying, Mister Nesmith, and I know there's no such thing as a ship, and I I'm not I'm not crazy." And then Tim Allen goes, no, 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 wait, it's real. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and then he calls all his friends to rally around the, you know, to basically they do a Zoom call in two, in 1999. Right. And each one of them knew a different part of it. To, you know, the one of them knew the engineering specs. One of them knew this spec. So they, they had to do a chat room thing to get all the information from the nerds to, you know, save the universe. Right. And to and, basically guide them through this ship and to get to their destination. But, um, so, yeah. So behind, behind the fourth wall, so Justin Long, he tells his story where he was going to do a play on Broadway that Alan Rickman was ending a run with. And there was going to be an opportunity where he could have done, like, they could have overlapped for two or three performances. And Justin Long was too intimidated they, they they had a good relationship on the set, but he didn't think he should play opposite to Alan Rickman on a Broadway stage. So he's like, no, I'll, I'll keep my original start date instead of coming in a few episodes early. And when he got to his dressing room the first night, there was a handwritten note. And he said it was the most beautiful curse if you've ever seen from Alan Rickman that said, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Because Alan Rickman had wanted him to come and do that together. Uh, so I, th- I thought that was like one of the really good stories, you know, from it. Uh, David Newman did the composing for this, who was Randy Newman's cousin. And a lot of people don't know this. Randy Newman's father and Randy Newman's uncle were two of the biggest composers from the 40s, 50s, you know, through the 60s. And, and it's kind of a family business. He has two or three other cousins who are not to his fame. And, you know, Randy Newman did everything he can not to be a movie composer. And then did everything he could. Well, he, he put out three albums, three absolutely great albums that are 
Desert Island, amazing. Some of the greatest songs that ended up almost like this movie becoming more famous 10 years after. Mm-hmm. But he said everything he, he wanted to say about being part of the counterculture. You know, he's a product of like the 60s and the early 70s. Nobody bought the album. So he said, fuck it. I'll go into the family business and become. But anyway, so but David Newman, if you look him up, who did the composing, you know, he did. He really wanted to come as close to like the Star Trek and the Star Wars kind of elements of the like the composing without like stealing from them, but stealing from them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's doing like, a pastiche of those types of orchestrations. Yeah. Great. Now I got to go look a word up. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> I don't want to learn anything. You don't have to. Okay. Well, I'm going to. It could be a flavor um, of ice cream that I just said. You don't know. I, I will when I look it up. <laughs> so here's the funny thing. If given the choice right now to go watch Galaxy Quest or go watch the making a Galaxy Quest, I watch the documentary. I really I like the movie. I'm not saying I don't, but it's really funny listening to Sigourney Weaver talk about how she had to beg to get onto a sci-fi movie <laughs> that her impeccable sci-fi credits hurt her getting onto a sci-fi movie and how she, you know, and she like, you know, she loved the wig and she loved it. Like her shirt was always unbuttoned and like the push-up bra and stuff like that. She's like, I looked great. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> so I guess now, you know, we can get into a little bit wrapping up. We can get into like the, the kind of the after effects and what was laying ahead for galaxy quest potentially. Okay. So in the documentary, Paul Shear, who's a comedian, you've seen him in a bunch of things. He's on that, he does a podcast. How did this get made? He apparently had some sort of a development deal with, I guess with DreamWorks where he, they went to him and said, look, give us whatever ideas you want to do. Whatever, whatever your dream ideas are, let us know. And he had a couple of other, you know, ideas that were knocking around. But he was like, you know what? What I really want to do is kind of rebirth the Galaxy Quest movie and maybe maybe franchise it, turn it into something new, maybe make a series out of it. Long story short, they got basically everybody on board from the original yeah, cast. Everyone loved it. Everyone was dying to come back and do it. Yes. Yes, everyone was dying and, and to, to come back no. and do it. Sorry. <laughs> and then one person did die, Mr. Alan Rickman. Um, yeah. And then, then that that put the brakes on everything, and I was just like, oh, because they had they had like everything in pre development. They were shocked that they got everybody. They were, but it turned out to be one of those things. If you see the documentary, the passion everybody had behind it, and and it's great that the scene where Alan Rickman, you know, w- one of these alien creatures is about to die, and. Alan Rickman bends down and he says, you know, by Baltar's hammer, I will avenge you. And you can see the last dying breath of the sailing creature is absolute fulfillment. Right, because that creature was, uh, he told him right, uh, right up front as soon as they met, it's like, you know, I've, I've modeled my life after your teachings. And he looked up to his character and, and he hated that phrase and he hated that phrase and he didn't really like giving that phrase and then when he when he kneels down and and he and has to say it one last time and he just says it with such conviction and emotion passion yeah. passion and like he performance of his life for this one being and yeah oh it, it hits you it hits it, it does hit you right in the place where your heart might be it's not supposed to <laughs> you know the, you know we know how goofy and silly and over the top this is but then it has those moments where you're like like a scene that chokes up Tim Allen you know I mean there's a couple of those scenes where yeah. you're like this is wait a, a minute th- that's why this movie was so fantastic because it hit every single note if, with efficiency and with precision and in, the tone shifts were 
were not sudden or stark. It, it was tender. It was self-knowing. It was self-deprecating at times. It, uh, it was funny as hell. And the catchphrases actually, like, you know, could have been landed. real. Ca- yeah. yeah, they landed. Never give up. Never surrender. That's so stupid. Never give up. Never surrender. It, it's saying the same thing twice two different ways. <laughs> but it's funny. and, and But it, it lands because it's perfect. And if those beats didn't hit as hard and as and as perfectly as they did, this movie would have been like kind of like a toss away. You know, it wouldn't have been as loved and revered as as it turned out to be. So one of the things that the the production people weren't happy with, that the producers weren't happy with, and the director wasn't happy with, is the fact that um oh some something came out just before it that did really really well, and they wanted to make this like a rated G movie. They wanted to make it a family movie. And at one point, like this one scene where Sigourney Weaver and Tim Allen, they have to get from point A to point B down this hallway and it has all these death traps in it. And as they come around the corner, Sigourney Weaver says like, oh, fuck me. Yeah, she goes, oh, fuck that. And, yeah. And in the editing process, they go, oh, we got to make this PG-13. We got to drop the fuck. And so they dub her over. But they did nothing to hide the, her lips. <laughs> Not even close. I mean, and, and it is—it's watching the Godzilla movie. It's like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Whole, yeah. the lip sync, and it's like everybody knows what she. And then you know, the rest of the cast is like, you know, oh man, I can't believe the stuff that they cleaned up on this because they. But all of a sudden, DreamWorks, the movie that had just come out that had done really, really well. That was, you know, a G-rated family movie. And they're like, this has to be that. Let's make it this. And the the other fun thing that we hadn't touched on is that Spielberg showed up. You oh, know? yeah. And, and, and it's funny because he gave him one piece of advice that ended up costing them dearly. The only piece of advice he gave him is he was talking about you want to make sure that you have thick, thick mylar. You know, a couple layers of mylar on the floor because of the way it reflects the light. But their lighting scheme was different, and it ended up causing it to first melt and then catch on fire. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, and man. it was funny because it was. There was a couple, uh, you know, actors who were like, hey, I'm all good being in a movie, but not with him standing there. Like, I don't want to perform in front of Spielberg, you know? Yeah. Um, it was intimidating. Also, let's not forget, and I, I'm looking through the notes, thank goodness. Uh, this wasn't the first script pass. Oh, no. So many rewrites. No, but remember who wrote, uh, who who was tacked to be in production and then like, bowed out? Harold Ramis. Oh, Harold Ramis. Harold <laughs> Ramis, yeah. who later said it was the biggest regret he had in his career. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, like, like, because this was DreamWorks. Like, DreamWorks was starting off down this road. And they were so psyched to have him. And he was in development for months and months and months. It never said why he dropped out. I have it here. Okay. Uh, he wanted to cast Alec Baldwin in the lead role. And right. then Steve Martin and Kevin Klein. But when Tim Allen was cast, he did not like that. He didn't buy Tim Allen one bit. And he, he, he left the project. Uh, so I think I think that's what... According to if the internet's lying to me, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna have a lawsuit on my hands. So in the documentary, they don't want to say that they mm. don't want to they don't want to make Tim Allen feel bad, right? Because in the documentary, everybody has a segment. You know, everybody comes back and you know, 
so they don't want to say, oh, Tim, he left because you were in it. <laughs> and at the same time, they didn't want to, you know, talk shit about about him but they did say when he saw the movie you know a bunch of the other you know producers said yeah he said it was his biggest regret of dropping out of that because it was so fantastic you know but then again i mean it might not have been fantastic if he did direct it but right. yeah it, it, it's right it's just, you kind of wonder what it would have been uh rain wilson was in this movie it's, <clears throat> he had a very small part that was going to be a much bigger part because they really liked because the script was written, but a lot of it was improv and personality and they were making parts bigger. Same with like Sam Rockwell and Rain Wilson had something else that he had a commitment to. But I forget in the documentary, he was like, he was really, really bummed that he, you know, they're like, are you sure you can't stay and give us like another week? Because they had really liked his character and what he was doing with it. But yeah, and, and, but that was one of those things. He was this like younger actor who, you know, went from, you know, can't get a job to having, you know, a couple at the same time and having to make, and I, I forget what it was. It was, it was a good role that he went to, but yeah, there's so many little people in it. I can't remember. I'm trying to think of the main guy, the main alien guy. He's he's like in a thousand things. You know, he's one of those actors where you see his face and you're like, oh, okay, it's oh, that guy. Enrico Colasando? Yes, he, that's he him. Was, Thank he you. He was in uh, Just Shoot Me. He's on like, you know, I guess now he's doing like West uh, Westworld. And yeah, he's like, he's the bald guy. Right. Yeah. Oh, and he's great. Uh, but uh, yeah. I enjoyed the documentary. It was touching. I enjoyed the movie. It's it's great. Uh, I discovered it a little bit late. I didn't watch. I did I watch it when? I don't know if I watched it like soon after it came out. But when I did finally watch it, I was like, oh, I should have seen this immediately. This is perfect. This is a, a perfect sci-fi movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Galaxy Quest, like ninety-nine Galaxy Quest. I think that sort of ushered in kind of a new. Like you said, like a new mentality and attitude towards sci-fi, not only writing but fandom and um, right. appreciation, and and you know made, maybe made uh, Hollywood look, hey, maybe there is something to this fan base that we could exploit. <laughs> uh, oh, and I don't think we said it. It's it's on right now as the, as we're recording this. It's free on Amazon Prime. The documentary, the Galaxy Quest, you got to buy, but. Mm-hmm. The documentary is free. I highly suggest watching it. I'll watch both of them. You know, I watched Galaxy Quest a dozen more times in my life, but I would if I was given the choice right now to rewatch one of the two. This documentary is fantastic. It's really well done. It's really funny. I just like when you got somebody like Sigourney Weaver. You know, not not like shitting on herself, but like really, she really had fun with this role. You know, she really has the self awareness. And, and as does you know the, the little actors to the big actors, yeah, Sam Rockwell, um, yeah, I mean just that whole character guy. <laughs> you don't even bother to give him a name, but that, but it, there was that funny scene where he's like, "What's my name? You don't even know my name." <laughs> <laughs> you know, to the other cast members. Yeah, so you know, give it a watch. Carnival personnel approved. Who gives a shit, right? Are you still listening? Oh, good for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Biff. Right. Well, thanks for listening to Carnival Personnel's Sideshow on Never Surrender, the Galaxy Quest documentary and Galaxy Quest. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed watching the, uh, the movie and the documentary. Not so much doing this, but it, it was fun. In closing, I'll say never give up, 
Never Surrender by Grapthar's Hammer. Don't forget. Don't forget.